First Peter chapter 3, and let me read verses 8 through 12. Finally, all of you, live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers. Be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. Because to this you are called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Well, I love a good summary. Summaries are really helpful. They, they take, as you know, complex issues or complex debates or books, th- things that you know, take a long time to understand, and they just distill it down, and they say like, okay, here's the main point. Here's the main thing you need to understand. Here's the, the three bullet points. These are the takeaways. This is the bottom line. And here in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 to 12, we have a kind of summary, I think, of the book so far that we've been studying. Uh, you see there in verse 8 where it says, finally, in Greek, it's a, it's a sort of summary statement. So, so for the last three chapters, Peter has been teaching us. We've been studying it over the last several months. And now he wants to kind of pause and be like, okay, okay, let me give you a list of bullet points. Let me just summarize this for you. Let me pull this together. Um, so, so for the last three chapters, Peter has been trying to help us think about how we live as Christians in a world that doesn't follow Jesus Christ. How do you follow the Lord when you live in a culture where where Christ isn't honored and glorified and where the things the Bible says are right and wrong, the culture says, no, 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 that's the opposite. Wrong is right and right is wrong. And and when you live in that kind of context, especially when you're you're a minority religiously and and in terms of your views of right and wrong in life, how do you function? That's what Peter was writing about to the Christians in in 1 Peter. He's trying to help them think that through. That's why Peter calls the Christians in 1 Peter, you know, what does he call us? He calls us strangers, aliens. We're citizens of heaven living as expats here on earth. And sometimes the culture is hostile to our faith. And of course, I think that, as we've been talking about, that has special significance for us as Christians living in 21st century America, as our culture has been really careening in a post-Christian and sometimes anti-Christian kind of direction. The, The culture is shifting very rapidly. It's not what it once was. And and there's sometimes open hostility so that to hold to what the Bible teaches and and to hold what it teaches about God or about right and wrong, sometimes that's mocked and pilloried and and viewed as as close-minded and narrow and and regressive in our culture. So what do we do? What's our game plan? How are we going to function in this society? And Peter's been trying to help us with that. And now he wants to give us like, all right, here's a summary verses 8 through 12. I'm going to give you some, some simple action steps. Here's your battle plan for functioning in this kind of a context. So for those of you who've been studying Peter with us the last several months, this is a great text just to kind of 
pause and pull together what you've been learning and what we've been learning and, and kind of summarize it and distill it down into some really direct action points. And for those of you, maybe this is your first Sunday here and you're very unfamiliar with Peter. Perfect Sunday to come because you get the summary. So let's look at this. So, so what's the plan? How are we going to do this as Christians? How are we going to thrive and survive even in a, a post-Christian America? And he wants to give us, I'm going to argue, three, three action points here, three things we're supposed to do. And the first one's in verse 8, and I would summarize verse 8 this way, cultivate a community of grace. Cultivate a community of grace. Let me read verse 8 again. He says, finally, all of you live in harmony with one another, be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate, and humble. Verse 8 is describing how Christians are supposed to relate to each other inside the church. Verse 8 is describing what it looks like for Christians, that this is the kind of culture we should develop among one another. He's really writing to Christians here and how they relate to each other. You'll notice he says in verse 8, live in harmony with one another. In Greek, the phrase, and we'll talk about this in a minute, is, is just be like-minded. He's talking about being like-minded as Christians. It's not be like-minded with a world that doesn't believe in Jesus. It's about the body of Christ. Or he says, uh, love as brothers, have brotherly love. This is talk about how Christians are to love each other. So verse 8 is a description of the kind of community we're supposed to have. So our first strategic step in living for the Lord in a post-Christian culture, or even in, in their day, a pagan culture, is to cultivate a, a kind of counter-community in the midst of our surrounding culture, to, to have a, a distinct a community of faith among ourselves that, that looks different and feels different, where, where the values of the kingdom of God are, are cultivated and nurtured and built up among one another. This, of course, is what immigrants do all the time, right? People who immigrate from one place to another and suddenly find themselves as a minority culture within a majority culture, they typically they live to, near each other, they love each other. They take care of each other. Even as they're interacting with the outside world, they, they have this little, you know, this, this little area. You think about the history of Boston, right? You had these English Puritans who settled it, and then these immigrants came. The Irish, you know who you are, right? And, and they, they banded together, and they had little Irish communities. And, you know, you go to Southie, and it still's got that, like, Irish feel. And then the next wave came, the Italians, you know who you are. And, and by that time, the, the, the Irish had moved out of the North End, and, and the North End, you know, it used to be like a really high-end place, and then it kind of became a dump, and that's where the Italians went. But then they fixed it up. You know, and, it's an, and even still, you can go to the North End, and it's, still, it's a little Italy. There's a little Chinatown. It's still happening, right? Go to Mattapan. It's a little Haiti. It's, it's one of the biggest immigrant populations in Massachusetts are people from Haiti. Or, or go, to, you know, go, go up to Lowell. It's like little Cambodia there. Or, or go down to Fall River. It's, it's little Brazil, a little, little Portuguese area. So, so this is what immigrant peoples do. And so in a sense, one of our main strategies as Christians living in this world is, is we've got we to cultivate a, a little, it's not little China, not little China or not little Italy. This is like, like the church should be like a little heaven. People should come into the local church and be like, this is different. What is this? What's this culture here? 
I don't, this is not like it's like in my office. This is not like it's like in school. And, and we should be cultivating the culture of the kingdom of God. Because one of the, the challenges, I think, of living as Christians in a non-Christian society is, is the challenge of compromise, right? We're, we're tempted to compromise. We're tempted to... Because who, who likes to be in the minority? Who likes to be the person who's out of place? Who likes to be the one where everyone else is like, why, do you, why are you like that? That's weird. No one likes that. And so the temptation is always to compromise. But one of the ways we, we, we stoke our faith and, and we keep our faith in Christ strong is, is that we have a community where we remind each other, people, people, this is who we are. You know, we're, we're followers of Christ. So what does that community look like? How do we, how do we shape that community? What, what, is that, what does the community of heaven look like? You know, do we have a certain food we wear? Do we dress a certain way? Do we have a specific language like you know, an Italian community did or an Irish community did? No, no, no. It's, it's how the community of heaven is not marked by food or dress or anything like that. It's marked by how we treat each other, the quality of our relationships, we need to cultivate a community of grace. So what does a community of grace look like? Well, it looks like verse 8. Here's five characteristics. Let me just walk you through them. Number one, he says, verse 8, live in harmony with one another. In a community of grace, there's an effort at harmony. As I mentioned earlier, the Greek word there is literally be like-minded. Think the same. Think similarly. So it's a like-mindedness. This is a command we find other places in the New Testament that Christians are to be like-minded. I'm going to be honest with you. I always struggle with that one because I have yet to meet a Christian with whom I agree 100%. <laughs> How do you be like-minded? Like, what does that mean, practically speaking? How do you live that out? And certainly being like-minded, I think, means that there are some things we all agree on. We, we all believe that we all believe the gospel. To be a Christian, you have to believe the gospel. You have to believe that Jesus Christ came, was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross to pay for our sins. He was buried. He rose again. He ascended to heaven. He's returning someday. And, and, and that our hope of salvation is not in ourselves or our good works or our attempts at religion, but all of our hope of eternal life is what Christ did for us so that we're living by faith in Jesus. That's the gospel that we believe and that we hold to, and that binds us together as Christians. And hopefully there's certain things that we believe about right and wrong that we all say, yeah, that's wrong. We don't do that. We're, we're Christians. We don't live that way. Or, you know, yeah, we do this instead. And, and so there's certain things we believe together. But then there's other things. You know, what about those other things? What, what about those theological issues where Christians disagree or those parts of the Bible where Christians disagree on how to interpret it? Or, or, or you know, what about, what about some moral issues where there's disagreement? You know, I was trying to think of examples. I, I thought, you know, what, what about drinking alcohol? Is it wrong for a Christian to drink alcohol? Christians disagree on that. And, and there's a whole spectrum of opinions. So what about all those disagreeable things? How can we be like-minded? And I think what, the, what being like-minded means is not only that there's some things we have to agree on to be, to be Christians together, but it also means a commitment to moving toward each other when we disagree. To, to say, well, you disagree, we, well, 
What do you think? Why do you think that? Let me ask you questions. Because our natural tendency is what? When you disagree with someone, when you find some big area where you, you stand on different sides of the issue, is to be like, oh, he's one of those. Oh, you're, that's okay. I know who you are. Box category. Gotcha. Pit, you know, pigeonholed. You're over there. I'm over here. I'm going to find the Christians who are this way, and you be with the Christians who are that way. But I think being like-minded means a commitment to always moving toward each other, leaning into each other. If we find areas of disagreement, we, we say, okay, listen, I, I really think differently than you. I don't understand why you think the way you think. Could you explain it to me again? Help me understand why you see it that way. And even if we can't fully agree, we're still committed to each other. That's harmony in, in the kind of commitment to like-mindedness that we'll never have perfectly. When we're in heaven, we'll be like-minded perfectly. But here, it's, it's a process and a pilgrimage together. And again, that's going to be different from the world because you go out into the world and, and there's lots of division. There's lots of polarization. I feel like everything in America is politicized. So it's like every single issue somehow gets turned into Republicans versus Democrats. <laughs> things that aren't even like political get politicized. And you're like, is everything red or blue? I mean, is, is there anything that's not political? And, and so there's different opinions and different views and, and different groups, and we're, we're lumped into groups, you know, where it's men versus women, it's this ethnicity versus that ethnicity, that's the rich versus the poor, then, then we're pushed apart into different segments. But when people come into the church, they should be like, huh, So you have different ethnicities in the church. You have different ages. There's old people and young people. Some are single. Some are married. Some are are wealthier. Some are not as wealthy. And yet they all seem to be cohesive. What is going on here? Well, this is the culture of the kingdom of God where we've been unified in Christ and we're learning to be like-minded. We need to cultivate that. Here's the second one. Be sympathetic. So number one, be like-minded. Number two, be sympathetic. Feel for each other. So we should not only have an alignment in thinking, we should also have an alignment in our emotions. We should feel for each other. If, if you're hurting, you, know, you should be hurting for this person. And, and if you're struggling, you should be struggling for him or for her. So in the body of Christ, we, we feel for each other. There's compassion that there's love, that there's a sense of warmth and tenderness toward each other. That's another characteristic. And again, that's different from the world. The world's like, hey, deal with it. Suck it up. Stinks to be you. That's tough, you know, tough. And, you know, just tough it up, stick it out. And, and, and there isn't always a lot of compassion and sympathy but inside the church, this, this ought to be a place where we, we come in with our burdens from the world and we can walk up to each other in the, in the body of Christ and be like, how was your week? And be like, oh, terrible. You know? Whereas everyone else, you've got to be like, I'm good. I'm all set. I'm good. I'm tough. Right? But in the church, we should be like, uh, not good. Oh, really? What happened? Blah, 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 blah. Oh, I'm so sorry. Let me pray for you. Hug. You know, just loving each other, having sympathy. It should kind of be like, I, I was trying to think of a metaphor here. It's like the church should be like that warm room in the midst of winter. You, you know, when you have a, a week like we've had this week where it's 15 degrees and then there's wind chill and you, you just, it's raw cold and you feel like you can't ever get warm. And, and so you're like zipping around, you know, out of your car, trudging around. And then you walk into a house or you walk into a, 
a shopping mall or the grocery store and, and they've cranked the heat up to like 70. You just walk in, you're like, oh, you know, you start taking off the hat and the mittens and the everything. You're just like, oh, this feels so good. And, and we just pray that the, that the culture of the church ought to be a place that when we come together, whether it's on a Sunday morning or into a growth group Bible study or, or to a prayer meeting or, or times when we get together as a, as a congregation, as Christians, where there's a, a sense of like, oh, it's warm here. It's, it's nice. There's, there's an emotional warmth that we have for each other. Let's cultivate a community of grace, like-mindedness, sympathetic. Number three, love as brothers. Love as brothers. You know this Greek word, Philadelphia, brotherly love. Love that's like family has for each other, where we treat each other as family because, because we are family. Do you remember this back in chapter 1? Turn back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Peter says, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, 1 Peter 1.22, have sincere love for your brothers. That's that same word. Love one another deeply from the heart. That's how you love family. And why? Because, well, verse 23, we actually are family. For you have been born again. We've talked about this in Peter. To be a Christian is to be born again. If you're not born again, you're not really a Christian. And if you want to be a Christian, as Jesus taught, you must be born again. There has to be a transformation of your heart through the Holy Spirit. There's only one type of Christian in the Bible. It's a born-again Christian. And when we're born again, well, then you're born into a family with one another. And so we actually are literally a family, a spiritual family through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we're called to love one another as a spiritual family, to really care for each other. And that means we have to know each other and spend time together and, and really care for each other. And I think that's challenging. I think it's challenging for us as American Christians. Um, you know, American, as American Christians, I, I think we're shaped. We, we have to constantly be fighting against individualism. As American Christians, we have to constantly be fighting against consumerism. These things kind of shape the way we look at the church. And, and I, I think as American Christians especially, we have to really work hard at, at experiencing and approaching one another as a family. Um, I just think that's something we constantly have to be working on. Other cultures, that's more natural. Our culture, that's one of our growth points uh, as we think about living out what the Bible teaches, is to really be a family to each other. You know, I think about how we as Americans often think about the church, and I was trying to find a metaphor, so here's what I came up with. I think we, we sometimes think about the church like the YMCA. Um, I don't know if you, anyone here is a member of any of the YMCAs. Our, our family's a member of the YMCA in Hanover. And just so you know, I love the YMCA, okay? It, our family is big YMCA people. It, it's great. We've been going there. My kids swim there. My wife loves to play tennis there. I work out there. I mean, we, you know, our kids have been in the nursery there, so we're very pro-YMCA. We, uh, I, I love the facility there, the programs. And, and that's often how, how we think about the YMCA. It's like, great, it offers programs for my kids, great facility. It's got all these things. It's convenient. It fits my schedule. It fits my life. I've even made some friends there. It's wonderful at the YMCA. So I'm a member at the YMCA, right? Until what? Until they build a bigger, better YMCA or another building near my house. 
then I'll become a member there. <laughs> so, so, you know, I, I love the YMCA, but I wouldn't call it my family. It's not a family. It's just a nonprofit organization with a lot of often awesome services and, and amenities. And I think, again, sometimes we can come into the church, and without even realizing it, because we've been affected by our culture, we, we see a local church, this church or another church, as a kind of like YMCA, like, you know, do they have the things I need? Do I like the facility? Is it convenient? Does it fit my life? Oh, I'll become a member. And then, you know, we, we, we're involved in it, but it's not like a family. It's more as a kind of nonprofit organization that provides services. But this is something else. This is family. This is loving each other and caring for each other. And that's something we need to grow in, I believe. And when the world comes into that, the world will be surprised by the way we love each other. It feels like a family reunion here every Sunday. Yeah, we're family. That's what it should be like. You know, when church is over, you guys just don't fly out the door as fast as you can. You're staying around talking. It's like you like hanging out. Yeah, we're family. We love each other as brothers. So let's cultivate a community of grace, like-mindedness, sympathy, brotherly love, sisterly love, Number four, be compassionate, which I think is, is another way of saying sympathetic. Again, it's the feelings toward one another. And then finally, number five, humility. Be humble. I think humble is my favorite one. I love humble. Because here's the thing. You can't really be humble, have true humility, unless you're, you're really walking with the Lord and the Holy Spirit. You know you're in a church with the Holy Spirit when the people are truly humble. You know, there's a lot of churches that teach the right things, teach the right truths. Uh, you know, you'd look at what, you'd hear what they're preaching, what's being taught in their Sunday school classes, you'd be like, yep, they're teaching the right things, they're, they're successful, God's doing things in that church, and yet there can be an arrogance in the church. The leaders can be kind of self-righteous, people can be puffed up, you get involved in the church and there's all these turf wars and agenda wars and, and people are you know, cocky and strutty and, and full of themselves. But to be truly humble takes the power of the Holy Spirit. And so when you find truly humble people, not false humility, but real humility, it, it, it's an evidence of God at work. And we need to be humble toward one another. That's a community of grace. That's God's grace. You know, what is grace? It's like this. It's like like-mindedness and sympathy and love and compassion and humility. And, and we cultivate that here. So there's a little heaven here. That when people come in here, they should experience a little, little taste of the kingdom of God. Not perfect yet, not in its full form, but, but like going to little Italy or little Chinatown. This is a little heaven. And we're experiencing that and we're cultivating that in our midst. That's one of our key strategies. So how about you, as you look at that list, just to do a quick self-check, do you find a desire to understand those who are different, to be like-minded? Are you sympathetic? Is your heart kind of cold? Are there people that you could love better, that God's put in your life in this church? How about humility? Are you proud? Are you, does it have to be your way or the highway? Are you able to defer to others and say, you know what? You got a view, I got a view, Let's, uh, we'll do it your way. Even though I personally think my way's a little better, we'll do it your way. 
Well, I'll defer. I'll serve you. I'll put you first. I'm going to put your needs first. You know, I, I know some of you have even like, it's like little things. It's like, you know what, I'm a, like some of you have been doing, I'm going to park at the back of the lot instead of near the front because I can walk. You know, or, or I'll sit here instead of there to make room. Or, or your ministry, let, let's promote your idea and your ministry rather than my ministry. All of those ways of humbly serving each other cultivates a community of grace that people can just kind of feel when they they walk into it and experience that. It's ultimately, we're talking about the character of Jesus Christ. This is who Jesus was. He was loving. He was compassionate. He was humble. And ultimately, it was his life poured out on the cross that embodied these things. And we need to be marked by that. So what's our strategy for living as Christians in a non-Christian world? Strategy number one, cultivate a community of grace. All right, I got two more here. I'm going to go a little bit faster. Second one, number two is respond with grace to our enemies. So number one is cultivate a community of grace. Number two, respond with grace to our enemies. Look at verse nine. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. So now the focus shifts from what we do inside the, the community of faith and how we're working on loving each other to how we now respond to the outside world, especially when evil comes at us or especially when insults or persecution come to us because we're Christians. How are we going to handle that? What's our response? And, and so Peter says, you know, don't repay evil for evil or insult or insult, but with a blessing. And that just goes against our natural wiring, doesn't it? Like our natural wiring is, you hit me, I hit you back. You, you insult me, like you know, some of you guys are in school, right? You get, any of you boys here in school or girls, you ever get in cut down fights with people? This is what we do in school. So I'm going to give you a cut down insult, you know, yo mama or whatever. <laughs> and so you're like, oh yeah? Well, da 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 da. And they're like, oh yeah? Well, mm, and, mm, and it's a cut down war. You know, that's just how we, how we think. We, we, we push back and we strike back. Or, or you, you, know, you gossip about me at the you know, mom's club to your friends? Well, I'm going to get on the text and talk about you and what you're doing to my friends. And so you turn your friends over there, I'm going to turn my friends over here. And, and so we, we go back and forth. This is the, the history of humanity. It's our natural instinct. But Peter is saying, don't retaliate. Don't retaliate. Isn't that what Peter's saying, right? Don't retaliate? No, not exactly. He's actually saying something more. He doesn't just say, don't retaliate. He says, bless. So in other words, someone hurts me. I've got three options. Option one, hurt him back. All right, that's off the table for Christians. Option two, don't retaliate. Take it, deal with it, just absorb it. Option three, respond with blessing. See the difference? It's an extra step. It's saying, not only am I not going to punch back, I'm actually going to bless you. Jesus taught us this. He said, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. If someone takes your coat, you know, give them your, 
your other garment too. If they want to take, make you go one mile, give them two miles. Respond with blessing to insults. You're like, whoa, that's tough. Yeah, that's grace. Grace is giving people what they don't deserve. I was reading one commentator, and the commentator told a cool story about a, uh, a Christian who was in the army, and they were in the barracks, and they had their bunk, and every night in their bunk, this Christian would get the Bible out and would read the Bible and pray. And, and he had another soldier who was in the bunk across the way who, who just he hated that. He didn't like Christians. And so whenever you know, the Bible would come out, all the insults and all the name-calling would start, and the Christian would just kind of take it, Right? And then one, one night it escalated a little bit and, and he's trying to read the Bible and across the room flies a pair of muddy combat boots. You know, pfft, it's just like, ugh. But in the morning, the soldier who throws the boots wakes up and there's those boots by his bed, cleaned, polished, and ready for inspection. That's responding with a blessing. That's not just non-retaliation. That's, I'm going to respond by actually doing something good for you and to you. You know, you insult me, I'm going to say good morning to you every time I come into work. I'm going to pray for you. When, when there's an opportunity behind the scenes where I could do something that would actually help you and you know, bail you out a little bit or not, I'm going, to, I'm going to take the high road and I'm going to help you and bail you out even if you hate me or say cruel things. That's, that's different. That is grace, to respond with grace. Do you have a situation in your life right now where someone's chucking combat boots at you? Have you thought about how the Lord could use you to bless that person in a way that would be appropriate? Ultimately, again, isn't this what Jesus did for us? Look back at chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 21. We started this a couple weeks ago. Peter says, to this you are called, this is our calling, to bless, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow, that you should follow in his footsteps. What was his example? He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth, he hadn't done anything to deserve getting the combat boots chucked. When they hurled their insults at him, they may not show boots, throw boots at you, but they're hurling insults at you, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly, and he went a step further. He actually saved and blessed. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. He blessed us with salvation, even though we were hurling the insults and the acrimony at him. And so as people who who've been affected and imprinted by the gospel. You know, the cross should leave an imprint on our lives. The cross should leave an indelible mark on our souls so that when people meet us, we're not only telling them about the grace of the gospel, but but they see it in the way we respond. They should see living uh, dramatizations of gospel grace. You say, what's grace? Well, grace means I'm giving love to somebody who's giving me hate. I'm giving kindness to someone who's giving me cruelty. That's grace. They don't deserve it, though. Right. That's grace. You don't deserve it. The whole point of grace is getting something wonderful when you deserve the exact opposite. And as people who've been forgiven all of our sins through Christ... 
as people who were once the enemies of God because of our sin, who've now been forgiven through Christ alone. This should mark us, and we should learn to walk in this way of grace. So what's our strategy? It's number one, to cultivate a community of grace. Number two, to respond to our enemies with grace. What do you think about that? Is there a little part of you that's like, yeah, but... (laughs) Yeah, but... They're getting away with it! Yeah, but... Who's going to, like, hold them accountable for all those bad things? Yeah, but I'm just rolling over. I mean, they're getting the upper hand. What about justice? What what about people being held accountable for their insults and those things? What about that? Are are we just saying that doesn't matter? Are we just giving bad things and bad people do a free pass in the world? No, we're not. But what we're doing is trusting God to take care of of the enforcing of justice rather than ourselves. And so that's our third strategy. Strategy number one, cultivate a community of grace. Strategy number two, respond to our enemies with grace. Strategy number three, trust God to be the judge, jury, and executioner, not ourselves. God will take care of all that. And that's really what verses 10 to 11 are about. He says, for... Whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. God will set it all right in the end. We can just trust him with being the judge, jury, and the executioner. And that frees us to do graciously with others, even with our enemies. This is an interesting quote, by the way, verses 10 to 12. It's actually from one of the Psalms in the Old Testament, Psalm 34, which is interesting. Psalm 34 was written by David, the king of Israel. And it was written by David during a time when he was being hunted down and persecuted by King Saul, when he was being unjustly attacked. So you guys know the story of King David. There was King Saul, the first king of Israel, Then King Saul turned away from the Lord, and so the Lord rejected him as king, and and then God anointed David to be the next king of Israel, the man after God's own heart. But David didn't immediately assume the throne. There was a a many-year period where Saul was still the king, and David was anointed to be the next king, and, and David continued to serve Saul and be faithful to Saul, but Saul became jealous, and he started to harass David and try to kill David, and he persecuted David. And so part of David's life is he had to be on the run. He was the king who was persecuted. Sound familiar? It's like Jesus. It's a prefigurement of Jesus. And so David is on the run. And, and so what, what is David going to do? He's like, you know, this, this king is after him, and he doesn't deserve it. Is he going to retaliate? Is he going to start his own army? Is there going to be a war between David and Saul? No, David does the right thing. Even on two occasions where David had a chance to kill Saul, he didn't do it because he said, that's not right. I'm not going to kill him. God's going to take care of it. And so Psalm 34 is a kind of meditation from King David on how he's trying to do the right thing even though he's being persecuted. So it's like a perfect psalm a perfect pull quote for this context. Perfect. And so look at what David says. Again, verse 10. Whoever would love life and see good days and keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech, he must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. So 
Don't use your tongue for evil. Don't respond to insult with insult. Seek peace. Try as far as it depends upon you to live in harmony. You know, it's, it's that response that we've been looking at in verses 8 and 9. For, that's the key, verse 12, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are attentive to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. God is going to mete out the rewards and punishments. Leave it to God. Trust God. In a way, I think it's almost impossible to do strategies one and two if you don't do strategy three. Because if if you're not trusting God, and if I'm not trusting God to take care of the justice stuff, well, then I'm not going to be free to respond in grace to people who hurt me. Because I'm always going to be like, you know, part of me is like, I want to respond in grace, but the other part of me is like, well, I got to make sure that all wrongs are accounted for and everyone answers for their crimes and everyone gets what's coming to them, right? It, you know, it's, it's really tough to live like this while simultaneously living like this. It just They're opposite motions. They're opposite heart postures. A defensive, protective assault, meeting out justice is different than, than the open-armed willingness to bless and embrace even your enemies. So I said, how do you do it? Well, you say, God, you, you take care of this. You're God. You're the judge. And I'm just going to live a life of grace and allow you to know that you see it, to know that you see how I'm responding, God. And someday you're going to set everything right in this life and in the life to come. Lord, you're the judge. And it frees us up. How about you? Do you, do you find sometimes, even as, maybe even as a Christian, that you have this kind of prickly, defensive, hard shell? This, this defensiveness, this aggressiveness, this kind of harsh criticalness and negativity. And, and maybe it's because, like, maybe you've been, like, really hurt in your life. And maybe you've just developed a way of surviving in this world that's, that's guarded and protective and, and a little bit hostile because you've, you've just been ingrained to learn to live this way. And, and you're sort of aloof and standoffish. And there's this, this kind of membrane of self-protection relationally between you and others that you've built up in your life. And maybe it's time to just let that go, the resentment go, the harshness go, and let the grace of God meet you afresh and soften you up like, you know, like lotion on dry, cracked winter hands. Just softening you up. Let the grace of the Holy Spirit just seep into you and know how much God loves you. Just let the Spirit free you from all that. Trust the Lord with the justice so that you can live a life of grace. Like David, who even when he had a chance to pin Saul to the ground with a spear, this man who was trying to kill him. Self-defense, David could have said. And David said, no, I won't do it. I'm going to trust God. Or like the Lord Jesus Christ, who even when they pinned his arms to the cross, He said, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. For they know not what they do. Let's pray.
O Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that once again we would experience your grace. Lord, I pray even for those who've been Christians here for many years that they might have a fresh encounter with your grace, that they might once again experience the healing balm of Gilead, the healing love of the Holy Spirit, that you would pour it out on them, and that, Lord, we as Christians might make more progress. Lord, you've brought us so far. We've changed so much, but we want more. Lord, we want more transformation. Oh, God, we pray that all of the the hardness and the defensiveness and the the resentment and the criticalness and the negativity and the, the harshness, oh, Lord, would you just soak that away through the love of the Spirit? Would you fill us up with such awe and love for Christ that we might be dispensers of grace, that grace might come out of us, that people might experience grace, both inside the church and outside the church. Oh God, I pray for anyone here today who's in a really difficult relational situation where they're feeling defensive or hurt or wounded or um, persecuted. Oh God, would you fill their hearts with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? that they might be able to overflow with blessing to those who insult them. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone here today who's not a Christian or who's unsure if they're a Christian, I I pray, God, that you would show them how much Jesus loves sinners and people like us, that they would see the beauty of Jesus' death and resurrection, and that they would long for that, and that they would long for that grace, that they would get rid of this crazy idea that we can somehow be good enough for a holy God but that we would just kneel at the cross and receive the grace that you have. Oh, Lord Jesus, make us a community of grace. In your name we pray, amen.